it's here, episode 350 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you. Yes, you. Yeah, yeah, you over there. I want to welcome you to the show. I'm excited because, man, 350 episodes. That's that's nuts. That's insane. I know for a little while I was kind of cheating doing two episodes a week, two shorter episodes, and I finally went back to the once-a-week format, but still, that's a lot of show content. I don't know how many hours of content that I have here on Monster Kid Radio, but I do know that I've got some of the best podcast listeners in the world listening to the podcast right now. That's you. Again, that's, that's you. I'm talking to you. You're the best. Thank you for being along for the ride. Whether you've been listening since episode one or you just now found us, thanks for being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience. Each episode of Monster Kid Radio, I try to kick off with a song. This time around, we are playing the song Galaxified from the surf band Seahorse. They're based out of Richmond, Virginia, and this song comes from the album of the same name. You can find them at seahorseva.bandcamp.com. Seahorse is spelled a little differently. It's S-E-A-W-H-O-R-S-E. And then VA for Virginia.bandcamp.com. Check them out when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast. I'll be playing the song in full at the end of the show. Before we get to the end of the show, though, we've got so much to get to. I've got one epic mega conversation with visual effects artist Joseph Schultz. He's been a longtime listener of the show, and he reached out to me to talk about the 1955 film Day the World Ended, Roger Corman joint featuring Richard Denning and... Lori Nelson. So there's your creature connection right there. A couple of creature from the Black Lagoon alumni in the film. Were they alumni at this point? Well, not Richard Denning, but I wonder either way they were in creature films and now they're in this week's movie as well. You know, before we get to that though, I want to give you a heads up. When I contacted Joseph via Skype, we just started talking and a lot of the conversation that we had before I quote unquote officially started the conversation is relevant. So I'm going to play a little bit of that, and then you're going to get into the meat of the episode where we talk about Day the World Ended. We're going to talk a little bit about Paul Blaisdell. We're going to talk a little bit about the difference between CGI and physical effects. We're going to talk about what eras feared what and how that impacted monster movies of those eras. You know, it's just a fun conversation. It's a good in-depth conversation. I could have chatted with Joseph for hours, and I probably will again in the future because I want to have him back on the show for sure. Now, this was a Skype-to-Skype call, so the sound quality kind of dips in and out every once in a while. Just just hang tight. I did everything I could on my end to make it work, but thank you, Skype. Before that, though, we got some feedback. Hey, Derek and Monster Kids Everywhere. It's Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Merry Christmas. I've been negligent in calling lately, but I have some comments on the last several episodes of MKR. First, I want to thank you and Dan Day Jr. for sharing your enthusiasm over the creeping flesh in number 345. I rewatched it based on the episode and have to say, although I still think it's a little slow for me, I enjoyed it much more than I ever have in the past. It's a lot better than I remember from previous viewings. Second, I got a kick out of Timothy Price's Monster Kid Chronicles on number 347, and I hope to hear more. Will you have future episodes, or did you just kick off the series for him? Third, I want to mention that I watched The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism this year for an article about the pit and the pendulum that was published in We Belong Dead, number 19. I agree with you and Troy Howarth on episode number 348. It's a forgotten gem. Monster Kids should not be put off by its lurid title. And finally, I have no comments for number 349 yet. I am off work this week, and with no driving back and forth, I'm behind on my podcasts. 
but I'm really looking forward to the supersized episode, a Christmas gift I'll enjoy after the actual holiday. I guess at this late date, it makes more sense to wish everyone a Happy New Year than a Merry Christmas. 2017 was great, with Monster Bash and meeting so many other of, as you say, my people. I'm excited to see what 2018 brings for all of us. ClassicHorrors.club. That's where you're going to find Jeff. And he's got that podcast with Richard Chamberlain. You know, I'll play the promo for that again later in the show. I know I played a lot, but, you know, it's a good show. So I'll play the promo for his podcast. Uh, Jeff, you know, one of the best things that I found about doing Monster Kid Radio is turning people onto movies that they think they didn't like before or maybe didn't have a lot of positive feelings about that sort of thing. So I'm so glad you went back and checked out The Creeping Flesh. I don't know if it was necessarily me and Dan you know, talking about it that prompted you to check it out and open your... I, I don't know. Whatever the reason, I'm glad you saw it and I'm glad you dug it. Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. What a... Oh, wow. You nailed it, man. It's a forgotten gem for sure. Listeners, check out that movie. Uh, we did talk about that uh, here on the show not too long ago. Check out the archives at monsterkidradio.net. As far as the Monster Kid Chronicles go by Timothy Price. When Timothy first approached me, he said he had a handful of stories that he wants to do with the Monster Kid Chronicles. And my hope is that Monster Kid Radio becomes the outlet for that. However, Timothy is an author a musician. He's got a lot of things going on and some of these things pay the bills. Some of these things don't. So, and you know, the things that pay the bills have to take priority for him. And, and that makes perfect sense. Totally understandable. So when he does get an opportunity to do another monster kid chronicles, definitely going to play it here on the show because I hope to hear more too. And then you mentioned next year, 2018. I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the end of the show. Here's another voicemail. Hey, Derek. My name is Eric. Uh, I found your podcast probably about, I don't know, two months ago. I've been mowing through the back catalog. Uh, it's I, I cannot say enough about the show. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, I was, I, I guess, more of a sci-fi kid or a star kid, like you guys call it, <laughs> uh, growing up. But uh, I don't know. I kind of forgot about my monster kid roots, and this show has brought them back big time. Uh, absolutely love it. And here's to 350 more. <laughs> <laughs> I love that voicemail. That was awesome. Eric, thank you for checking out the show. I'm glad you're digging it, man. Star Kid versus Monster Kid. You know, I'm not necessarily sure. I remember where I stumbled across the term Star Kid. It was one of the blogs that I used to follow. I, I probably still do, but I don't think the blog has been updated in a while. They talked about classic science fiction movies, that sort of thing. They used the term Star Kid to talk about their background. And I thought, you know, I like that. That that really makes a lot of sense for people who grew up watching classic sci-fi versus classic horror. Either way, Star Kids, Monster Kids, I don't know what you'd call a fantasy fan, but, you know, they're all welcome here on MKR. You're welcome here. Thank you for calling in and listening to the show. And I hope the older episodes, because there are some audio issues, you're able to, to get through those. And, I mean, stick around, man. We've got another uh, few more shows ready to go. <laughs> I appreciate you calling in. I, I really do. It means a lot. Having new voices to throw into the mix and then having old friends like Jeff as well. You know, listeners, if you want to contribute to the show, the way these two guys did it, well, they didn't actually call the voicemail line. They actually created an audio file, I'm assuming on their iPhone or smartphone, and just emailed it to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And you can do that too. You can also send in a written email if you want, and then I'll read it on the show and include you on a future episode. We'll go over the contact information at the end of the show as well. For now, I'm really eager to get to this conversation with Joseph Schultz. 
I don't think it comes up in the conversation. But but here's the cool thing. I have a connection to Joseph Schultz that he didn't really know about until I started talking about it on Facebook. And those of you who follow me on Facebook may have seen part of this conversation a while back. You see, I wasn't really into boy bands in the 90s. This wasn't really my thing. However, I did see a music video for a boy band on television that caught my interest. It was from the Backstreet Boys. The song's Backstreet's Back. And... They're monsters. They're dressed up as the classic monsters. You got a fan of the opera. You got a gill man. You got a mummy. You got a vampire. I mean, it's really cool. And I actually went out and bought the CD single of that because the CD single had the music video as a CD-ROM file on the disc. And I wanted to see and watch that because, darn it, it's the classic monsters. I don't care if it's a boy band or not. The song, whatever. And these days you can see the video on YouTube. I don't know what happened to that CD single if I still have it in a closet somewhere. But, you know... It meant a lot to me at the time because in the 90s, I wasn't really embracing a lot of my classic movie history, uh, heritage, uh, monster kidness. I was really trying to figure out who I was and where I was going with my movie making, my writing, just who I was going to be. And just having a few touchstones along the way, like the Backstreet's Back video, meant a lot. Well, it turns out Joseph Schultz did the makeup on that. And that blew my mind when I found that out. That this guy who was responsible to continue to nurture the monster kidness inside me during a time when I didn't really have it, for whatever reason, I mean, that's to have him listening to the show and, and to have him on the show meant a lot to me. And I hope you guys and gals dig the conversation, which is going to come up right after this. monster. 
Hi, this is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans... Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horrors Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. There's a shaft of light coming up out of the ocean. It was being guarded by a, a sea creature. I believe this light killed three men. Into uncharted secret coves hidden beneath the sea's surface go the daredevil hunters of the deep, searching out the mystery of sudden death. The secrets of the Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. Starring Kent Taylor, lovely Kathy Downs, and Michael Whalen, all enmeshed in a scientific web of terror involving secret death rays that unidentified nations will stop at nothing to obtain. Almost like it was burned by an atomic flash. Fisherman, too. Man bait, a luscious blonde too tantalizing for the weak to resist. I didn't know then they could put beauty and poison so cleverly together in one package. (laughs) But the shadow of the phantom death does not stop daring underwater adventures while a man of science probes the unknown for the answer to the phantom from 10,000 leagues. Don't miss the phantom from 10,000 leagues. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. It's funny because the 
almost every aspect of the physical stuff I've done. And it's the process. I think people just mm-hmm. worn out with the CGI now because it's not a fun process. It's a, con- you know, a conveyor belt assembly line. Uh, you know, that's a really good way to put it. I don't. Yeah, no, that's I can see good. that because you're not yeah. getting your hands dirty. You know, you're you're just. Well, there's no inventiveness. And that's where all the, cre- you know, um, it's funny because like even this short I'm directing, I don't tell the actors what I'm going to do ahead of time. I run it to them while we're shooting because there's a spontaneity. And it's funny because I shoot. They're like, are we going to do this again? I'm like, no, because if you know it's coming then. And you're not going to get the spontaneity. And when you have to come up with something for a limited budget on a limited time, your imagination goes really you know, overdrive. And CGI is not like that because it's like you press the same button. Yeah. You know, I, I spoke to my uh, friend, a visual effects supervisor for Armageddon, and he's doing his reel as a supervisor. And I'm like, how do you do that since you supervise? You can actually work on a shot. And he was saying about, he says, you know, you'll get a shot from the Avengers and he'll say, yeah, I did the Avengers on a reel. And there'll be 6,000 people worked on that one shot. He's like, well, what did you do? It's like, I traced that fire hydrant in the back and, you know, <laughs> this I do. and I did that reflection. Well, it's funny because in the old days, which I miss, I'm saying the old days, like the 90s and in the late 80s, is I would do stuff like, well, a Backstreet Boys video. It was my wife and I, I was called in three days before I do this stuff. But it's like, but everything you see, I did with my hand, with limited resources. So you'd sit mm-hmm. there as an effects guy and see it in the audience on a big screen and go, wow, that's like a group of five, ten people at the most. You know, and you have ownership. You have that ownership of it. Now you can't do that. Now it's it's a big, mega, thousands of people corporation with CGI. It's compartmentalized. Nobody's in charge of a shot. You know, that's why even with our small studio, you know, at Forward, we're in charge of shots where they're like, okay, you do everything. You photograph it, you do the miniatures, you do the compositing, you do the makeup effects, everything. You're responsible for the shot. Right. You know, as opposed to, you know, like the old Jack Pierce days, you know, he does the makeup and there's the makeup. Like you said, getting your hands dirty, getting getting in there, knowing that somebody actually touched it. Yeah, for me, it's just apples and oranges, man. Yeah. It, it just makes sense. You can't translate. Like, that's why well, I know for me with the Kong thing, you know, my buddy Jim is animating this Kong puppet. It's well, Sublime style. It's studio scale exact. It's an exact replica. And he's animating, and I'm telling him what I need him to do. And he's locking himself away for a couple of weeks and doing it. And you cannot, with like Kong Skull Island, when you have ILM with three or 4,000 people, whatever the number is, working on something, how can one person be control of that personality or that medium? You have people building on somebody else. So somebody will do the face, motion capture, and then they'll say, okay, I've got to make his body move. So they build off of it. And the next person builds off of that, and the rigor builds off of that. And when you have thousands of people building off something, it's just like whitewashing that initial intention because you don't have one guy doing it. So there's no way to keep a control. Yeah. With all the explosions and everything else and all the CG, it has a similar look and feel, which is bland. And the blandness comes from there's no strong personality. There can't be. It all starts to look the same. You know, it, it's like you'll never get a Harry Housley creature. It has nothing to do with the technical aspects. It has to do with that. You don't have one guy doing it anymore. And that, that's something that we struggle with because we're like, why? Why don't you have one guy do it? <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. You know, but I guess, yeah, yeah, I don't know. And you would know better than I would because, I mean, you're you're in the industry. I, I'm i not, I'm just a fan these days, but they all just start to look the same after a while. And, and the only difference is whether or not they spent more time rendering it, you know, <laughs> in the computer. That's why my, my son's 18 years old, you know, and I went to his art class and I speak to them because they all want careers. And, you know, 
we want to make animated cartoons. And I'm like, do you want to go to China or India? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, nothing's done here anymore. <laughs> you know, it's huge conglomerates. But I did, you know, with YouTube and independent and Netflix and Hulu, the opportunity now is better than ever for independence. There are so, for shorts, I mean, you know, we used to have to show them in a theater. You know, now you go on YouTube, I mean, there's so many different audiences that it's, it's wide open for independence. It's great. Yeah. And they're getting a lot more attention than the, the failed, um, you know, corporate things. But yeah, it's just, a, it's a whole, it took a shift. But now, like I said, now was the practical stuff is getting, becoming the buzzword. It's like people buying, you know, eight track tapes and vinyl again, <laughs> you know, which I love my son, all the songs he loves are all like seventies, eighties, you know, he'll listen to fifties music and he's 18. That's a parenting win there, sir. You're doing it right. That's what I'm <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because he has like over 500 like Godzillas. I'll have to show you a picture in his, his room. I started him off with Godzilla. Well, it's funny because when he was born, he was not one minute on the planet. And I held him in my arms. We watched Valley of Guanji was on TV at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm holding him up and he's smiling and we're watching it. So it's always going to be like our movie, you know, Valley of Guanji. And then, you know, the Godzillas. And then we still have this love, you know, of it where it's like a... a comfort food and stuff um you know it's funny because we watched the mst3 thing i'm totally with you on that all of the movies i own dvd yeah. i own in the pure state i love the extras but i don't buy the mst i'd rather watch them pure right because sometimes it gets a little on me but you know every once in a while it's fun and we enjoy watching it and stuff but but i always have the pure ones first yeah but sharing and he feels the same way. It's funny. I just showed him the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I'm shocked mm. I hadn't shown it before. And he's seen the Philip Kaufman remake, and he loved it. And he's recommending it to all his friends. And they're all like, you know, 18, <laughs> you know, bound for college. So it's just, it's fun that they keep it alive, when they man. Find out they exist. Yeah. When they find out they exist, it's just a fun thing. I, I want to. You know, thank you for the show. It's been a great show. I've been listening for a long time. Oh, thank you. you. It's funny. We've been working on, you know, we work so much in the dark, not talking to people on projects for days and hours and months, and you can't speak to anybody about what you're working on, especially on bigger projects because of these non-disclosures or just... So we all, you know, so I've been introduced to say, hey, you're going to listen to this. It's fun. And I, I love the fact that it is from a fan perspective because... We hear enough from the professionals, you know, or the people in it. And they're all monster kids. Most of them are, otherwise they wouldn't be in the field. Right. And we always have the same banter. Who, who would you like to date? Larry Nelson or, you know, you know, we always have the same conversations. If you were stuck in an elevator with this one or that one, <laughs> you know, just because it's just a lot of tedious, you know, time, even like painting a miniature or something. So we always have those kind of discussions. And it's fun. Even I know when you listen to earlier, sometimes people would – not know a correct name or not know mm -hmm. the correct director or whatever it was. And that's part of the fun. And even yourself, when you've discovered yes. like the planet of the apes to hear somebody's discovering that stuff. Yeah. It's just fun. It's kind of like I was talking to my friend, Jim, the animated saying like our Kong project, you know, we're doing it for those monster kids. We're doing it for the people that would appreciate it. The guys that are like us that just like to see, it. you know, mm -hmm. you're not going to make money off it. It's more uh, that kind of, um, like you say, your tribe kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear the appreciation and not, you know, the people that will find, like you said, find that hidden gem on the old movies and say, wow. Well, and you mentioned Planet of the Apes, man. That was some of my some of my favorite memories so far working on the show is discovering those and going through those. Because now I love that franchise so much. I love those first five films. They're so great. And I mean, that I had gone so long without having seen them blew my mind because they're so amazing. Yeah, and there's still a couple that, yeah, there's still a couple that I haven't seen. Like, I'm not big on the Poverty Row ones, so I've been trying to oh, make okay. my way up those. You know, because because my, uh, for some reason, I'm, I love the 50s stuff. Well, there's a lot of good stuff in the 50s, so. <laughs> you know, like, that's why that's why this movie, like, Day of the World End, it's just an interesting, you know, the whole way it comes about. So I said, yeah, so, so I've been listening to the show, and I'm like, you know what, I have to... <laughs> break the cycle call and speak to you say hi say appreciate it and then you guys are my guys so i'm like hey <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah it's, that's the one thing that i always and I, I walk away from the show thinking you know i've met so many wonderful people i get done with a recording session it's like yeah, that was great it's a good thing we don't live next to each other because that's all we would do and not get anything else done just sit around and talk movies all day so <laughs> you, know, has rom- you know my son you know as, as romantic as this industry is it is brutal yeah you know, it is brutal. I'm an uh, independent contractor. You know, I, I lead digital for production here with Robert. So, but those guys don't get a job. We don't get work. Right. So everybody's scrambling, doing whatever we can. Now we're artists, so we can do graphics and websites and designs and map paintings and independent. That you know, so our tool set is big, so we can stretch around. Even props, you know, which which a lot of friends do and model kits. You know, when a show's not on, but it is, it's, you're only as good as your next show. Even for the big guys, there's no solid employment. You know, TV's probably the closest you'd get. I could see that. Yeah. But it's tough. I mean, it's brutal. I mean, you're never going to make a fortune doing it. It's got to be in your blood. And I would imagine too, that in the industry, if, if it stands out too much, it's not really, you're not really doing your job anyway. I mean, that's, that's not part of, it's like any other part of working, working on a film, you know, if the music stands out too much or, or, you know, something stands out too much, it's, it's all supposed to be about the whole, you know? So, but you're right. Yeah. I would imagine it's, it's, you know, feast or famine. If you've got a good job, great. If you've got TV, I would imagine TV would be the best way to go, but. You have no idea. Like I was talking to my son the other day about all the flops this summer. Well, the mummy did horrible, but then, you know, pirates and transformers. And it's like, they were number five. It's like kind of what were they expecting? Right. You know, you knew they were going to milk them and now it's just going dry. But, uh, but I was telling him, we, they just announced the, a remake of invasion of the body snatchers. And he's like, we just saw that. We saw a remake. I said, that's, this going to be like number five remake. Yeah. It's going to be this, what the fifth time they've done it now. And it, really, you know, and, and they know, you know, the kids are not stupid. They know the formula. They know every single a decade, there'll be another remake just to keep doing it. And they're not buying it anymore because the true remakes are getting worse and worse and they're getting watered down and watered down idea-wise because they feel like they have to change something. Mm-hmm. So they rediscover the old one. They're like, this is so much better than the one made 30 years later. The one from the 70s is pretty good too, but I, I still go to the original. That's kind of like like the thing from another world and John Carpenter's, you know, which we love. And The Fly, I like both of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the industry kind of just, that's the way it is. And the other thing is, I was saying, look, if I'm working now on my own independent, you know, my little con project and doing whatever I can to keep my head afloat, right. you know? A couple of things going on. Okay, if I had worked on Valerian, right, I'd still get paid almost less than I'm making doing independent stuff because it's just it's very low. You'd be surprised how low the salary is for CGRs because there's so many of them. But you work on Valerian spending years of your life and it would come out and then with an hour, it's a bomb. Yeah. 
And, and as an artist, no matter what it is, you can't restrict. I've been on jobs where people are like, oh, you don't have to go all out on this. It's like, oh, you can't. As an artist, there's no switch. I can do half-ass work. <laughs> right. I mean, once you're in, you're in. Yeah, that's it's how I am with my podcast. I mean, it's how I am with my writing. You know, I don't want to just phone it in. Yeah, no, because again, it's you, and it's like, so if you work on stuff, I'm looking at all these, like The Mummy and all these movies, I'm like, wow, if I was in, let's say, in quotes, in the big leagues working on a huge studio movie at this point, and the movie tanks, you're like, oh my god, that's years of my life, and nobody's gonna, I, nobody, you can, oh yeah, we're gonna Valerian, oh, that piece of crap. <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? So it's like it gives you this balance or, or you know, or we put things in perspective. I asked my kid, like, um, hey, tell your friends what Alfred Hitchcock movie they like. Who? Oh, no. <laughs> You'd hate this. I have a creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, head, hands and stuff from. Nice. It was Halloween at a Halloween party. He was in middle school. Dressed him up as a creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, he, I nice. went in the class and I said, you know, there's an exchange student going to be here for a week. His name is Gil. He's from the Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> He walked in with the creature from the Black Lagoon, and he's sitting there, and he's blow, he had to blow, he's blowing bubbles. It was hysterical, right? But the only thing was that nobody knew who the creature from the Black Lagoon was. Oh, no. Oh, that's heartbreaking. So I had to cut the trailer and made it look like it was home movies. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's what they said. But it, you know, it was so funny. And then, then I think we went, I took him to SeaWorld in that outfit just so we could walk around uh-huh. and like jump out of display. <laughs> Kids would look in the fish tank and he'd be standing next to them with the creature outfit. You know, with like a Hawaiian shirt on. <laughs> he was probably about 10. That's the, well, that's the fun Halloween stuff. Like I had him, that's the thing, John Carpenter's thing one year where I put cold makeup on. I had all these insect arms coming out of his body oh nice that was fun um one halloween party i had a friend who had an alien suit oh of, of, of the xenomorph i dressed in the alien outfit they were out there it was a uh, what was it the nerf gun war kind of thing okay okay yeah so they're out there playing with their guns and they're all dressed as soldiers i dressed as the xenomorph and attacked them from the woods <laughs> <laughs> and they all fight me and then we brought out the video camera and we shot a movie you know, them, you know, me, you know, grabbing them and then falling back and then the alien attack. And it was just, it was just those kind of cool things. <laughs> I guess, you know, as a monster kid, dad, he loved Godzilla. I think it was his fourth, fourth or fifth birthday. I built the whole yard was all just cardboard um, boxes where I put post-its on it, spray painted it. They became instant buildings. Nice. And we made little masks for all the kids out of like uh, felt and stuff. And they picked their favorite monster mask and we put on the Godzilla march. Oh. And they would wreck the bill. And they wreck the bill. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That is so cool. But it's nice. Like that's our thing, you know. For he's my only son, so just the father and dad kind of thing. And you know, it's like I, I'd rather watch. It's funny because my son and I agree. We'd rather watch Angry Red Planet <laughs> than Avatar because the creatures are so. You look at the rat, bat, spider, uh-huh. and the amoeba with the eye, and then. That's from freaky looking stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, and then you look at Avatar, and it's like, so Avatar reminded me of Star Trek. Because uh, my wife is a horticulturist. She knows plants and how to identify. Okay. She's sitting there going, that's a hydrangea so-and-so. That's that so-and-so. That's that so-and-so. And I'm like, that's all CGI. And she's like, why did they pick like normal plants you can find anywhere? <laughs> it's like the Star Trek thing where they put the one colorful plant in. That's <laughs> fake. Yeah, and I really asked, and I'm like, you know, he has a whole planet to work with, an unlimited amount of budget, unlimited. 
thousands upon thousands of artists. And what does he do? <laughs> Take an extra pair of legs, you know, makes it work like Earth. You know, it's like I guess that's what it is. It's like a lot of these movies, which I think you're definitely there, is you're looking at the imagination and the artist as opposed to maybe the physical limitations or the technical of what could have been done. Right. Um, like I, when we start speaking about this day the world ended, it's amazing how much thought out it was. Yeah. Well, why don't we dive into that? So you got to play the classic five with me, which I am nervous about. Oh yeah, of course. No, I've been sitting here holding on to these classic five cards, man. Shuffling them. I was like, you know, should I sack it? No, we're going to do it totally random. It's going to be like, awesome. You know, like, like the poverty rule stuff. I know the name. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right, but no, let's let's see what I got. All right, let's do this. You know, I've been chatting with Joseph Schultz from Four Ward Productions, and, and we got to play the Classic Five. Okay. So for listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards. Uh, each card has a yes or no, this or that style question. There are no wrong answers. They're all about classic monster movies designed to give listeners an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the people that appear on Monster Kid Radio. You ready to play, man? Yeah, as ready as I'm going to be. All right, I'll give you one more shuffle. All right, here we go. Card number one, right off the top. Ooh, do you prefer Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing, Dr. Waldman, or Dr. Mueller from The Mummy? Ooh. I think I'd go with Waldman. Really? I don't think I've ever had anybody say Waldman before. There's something about the interactions. Okay. Van Sloan, I guess, more educated, I guess, (laughs) knows what's going on. I don't know. True. It's a tough one because if you had both of those guys in uh, smoking jackets in a room talking about how one knew more about vampires and one knew about mummies, they'd be pretty even. (laughs) True. You know, I guess pretty equal as far as like how they they do it. (laughs) They both seem pretty fearless where they're not necessarily afraid of what it is. Right. That's true. You know, I guess they're both more book smart than they would be like Van Helsing would be. <laughs> like, I can't even one of these guys going to the Van Helsing level or. Okay. But yeah, I'll stick with that. I like it. All right. Card number two, favorite Godzilla foe. You know, it, w- it would have to be Ghidra. It's just, I like the whole golden dragon idea. I know he's always, he's always Godzilla's foe, but for some reason, He's been the one. I mean, it's funny because I like Gigan as well. I like some of the more outlandish ones. Right. But he's still the iconic one for me. Like, uh, you know, I, I got to see Monster Zero on the big screen when oh, I was younger. Oh, nice. On a double feature with War of the Gargantuas. And they gave, yeah, they gave us a free issue of the Monster Times that had the poster in it. Oh, man, that's and, great. Um, yeah, and that's that's the one I saw. I, I you know, was like, wow. That, that made an imprint on me. You know, as did the, you know, um, World of Gargantuas to this day. But it's like I, I try to describe to my, my son what it was like back then. But, but, it, but, but yeah, it was some it was just some double feature. No, it's, it, it would be amazing. They've seen, you know, Ghidra on that, you know, on just big screen. And as far as, you know, Mothra, uh, you know, I'm sorry, uh, having Rodan in that as well. Yeah. Yeah, more than Gija 3 the Monster. So. I've only seen a few kaiju films on the big screen, you know, the classic kaiju films. Um, you know, the original Godzilla, King Kong versus Godzilla, uh, Mothra. I would love to see Ghidra on the big screen. That'd be amazing. Oh, yeah, well, hopefully with, the, you know, Godzilla's coming out, may, you know, I wonder if they will, you know, if Ghidra's in it, I wonder if they would, you know, re-release it. That's a good question, um, yeah, I wonder. 
Because I know they did it with Kong. It's funny because Kong they released it and then they had a moratorium when the new one was being shown. Right. And then uh, the original Godzilla made a round, you know, and Shin Godzilla. So if there's a little hope there, maybe just to introduce them or to piggyback off of it, yeah. that would be that'd be a good idea. Honey. That would be awesome. It's it's kind of like a rarity. You listening, Toho? You listening? Okay. <laughs> All right. Card number three: Klaatu or Gort? Oh, you know, it would be Gort. It would be Gort. Yeah? Yeah, it's got to be like the giant iconic robot. I mean, yeah. you know. Klaatu's got the weird springy weapon thing, and, well, that's supposed to creepy. I don't know. But I would definitely go with the giant robot, which actually, it's funny because you, the fries down in Burbank here, which you probably haven't been to, the fries in Burbank is all 1950s giant monster stuff. Really? You would go crazy they have four or five giant 11 12 foot ants in the store all over the place but they do have a half melted jeep with a military man in, and gort across the room firing at where is this the fries in burbank you know the fries chain of stores in burbank wow that's awesome in the um, electronics section where, you know, they have the rows of cameras, they have the miniature ramp for um, <laughs> when walls collide. When walls collide with the spaceship, um, the testing room where you go in to listen to the audio equipment, yeah. they have a full-size walk-in spaceship from JDR Stood Still. So you're walking into the ship to listen to the uh, things. They, they also um, have a drive-in theater where you're seeing in cars watching old films. So it's for a 1950s kid. I mean, it's older now, the store, but it's like, I'd love to have one of those ants. While we're talking here, I went to the Fry's website, looked up the Burbank store, and right there on the front, big old flying saucer right above the door. I had no idea. Wow. It was one of my birthday wishes. We had gone to a store called Creature Features, which is another yeah. fantastic store for all monster uh, stuff. And it's, again, in Burbank. And I said, no, we've got to go there. So I went there. I actually think I got my uh, disc for, yeah, I did Ghidra the 300 Monster. <laughs> but it was just so amazing seeing that kind of a store. That's that's awesome. I, I need to go there someday. Put that on the bucket list. Wow. All right, well, card number, let's see, that was three. Card number four, Son of Kong or Mighty Joe Young? I'm going to go with Son of Kong because of my particular, what I seem to be working on now, Mm -hmm. and I've got more of an affinity to it. And it's that, I think you spoke about it before, about the continuation of the story, the direct sequel. Okay. I think Mighty Joe Young, again, it's kind of a tough question there. It's a hard question, Derek. This uh, Mighty Joe Young, I think, Stop motion animation wise and pushing the envelope mm-hmm. is probably more uh, on par with the original Kong than Son of Kong is. You know, at least, you know, on that whole level and like with the, the lions fighting and things like that. Okay. But, but again, I think it's just because my personal interest at the moment is going to go with Son of Kong. Okay. All right. All right. And then the, the last question is not random. This is actually one that I wrote while I was talking with you earlier because you said a phrase that, that triggered something to me. And I thought, you know, that would be a really good question for the Classic Five. So the final question for you is one that you inspired. You ready? Okay. What character from a classic monster movie would you like to be stuck in an elevator with? Oh, that, that is <laughs> so, uh, stuck in an elevator with. I know if it was the Invisible Man, I wouldn't think I was in the elevator with anyone, so probably wouldn't be, well, <laughs> probably wouldn't be that. Let's see, the blob could probably go in and out pretty damn easy. Uh, hmm. What else would I be stuck in an elevator with? Maybe, 
I don't know. That's a tough one. I'm drawing a blank on this one. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, no. Well, let me think. I don't know. There's so many things running through my mind because I think what are the pros and cons of every every month? <laughs> well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a monster. It's just a character from a monster movie. So, like, in my case, it would be uh, Kay from Creature from the Black Lagoon. But, you know. Oh, you know who I You know, it was an actor. It would be John Agar. Yeah, anybody? Any John Agar's characters? There you go. Well, you know, yeah, maybe it's like, the, you know, I like him as the, the doctor in, like, Tarantula. Oh, yeah, yeah. As long as he's not the character from the brain from Planet Eros, I think we're fine. Or Hand of Death, that would be that would be bad. It's funny because I'm drawing through my mind thinking, okay, Invisible Man, you would know that the mummy might be uh, an issue because he's not exactly the, the neatest guy in the world. You know, if stay, it gets hot in that elevator, that wouldn't be nice. <laughs> you know, anything too large in the elevator wouldn't be good. Uh-huh. You know, not something with a lot of fingers because he press every single button. <laughs> you know, I mean, you'd have to wait. <laughs> All right, we'll tell you what. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put that into the deck as a permanent question as well as the opposite. Which one do you not want to be part of? I'd love to see how everybody else you know, would answer that one. <laughs> that, that's, a good, that's a good question. Thanks for inspiring that. And thanks for playing the Classic Five. And uh, because I am working on new questions all the time, next time I have you on, we'll, we'll dive into the deck again. Why not? We'll, we'll just make it a regular thing for everybody on the show these days. One scientist foresaw the day the world ended. There are two forms of life fighting for survival out here in this valley. And only one of them can win. I'll talk to the girls in the morning. The girls? Yes. They should bear children as soon as possible. He did not consider a human emotion. No one takes my gun. Tony, look out! He did not know about the uninhibited exhibitionism of a striptease dancer. He'd forgotten about the power of love and knew nothing about the vicious force of jealousy. Nothing ever come easy to me. Don't touch me. I can't stand you. Tony, let the little girl go. But more thrilling, more exciting, more mystifying is the monster. The mutation by atomic energy, part man, part beast, salaciously watching women as they bathe. A monster such as the eyes of man has never before seen. Killing one by one each of the few living men. Hunting out the most beautiful of the remaining women to take as his mate. I want to talk a little bit about The Day the World Ended. Um, This is a movie that you recommended we talk about on the show. And it's not one that I'm overly familiar with uh, outside of the creature connections. It's got two connections to Creature from the Black Lagoon with Richard Denning and Laurie Nelson. Denning from the first film, Laurie Nelson from Revenge of the Creature. And it's a Corman film. So you'd think I I should be very familiar with this, but I'm really not. I'd seen it before watching it for this episode, but... It's not a go-to for me. At least it hadn't been. Having watched it this time, I fell in love with a lot of it. So now it will be a go-to for me. But you were the one that recommended this. Is this something that has like a special place in your heart? When I was younger, you know, I I was raised in New York. When I was younger, I remember watching, um, you know, Chiller Theater a lot with a hand coming up. Chiller. Oh, yeah. And um, I used to stay up late, late night and watch this. The family... Wasn't saying anything, so I figured I was getting away with something. But, you know, it's just maybe too scary a movie. And 
more than enough times, Soul Train would interrupt your theater. I'd see a great movie in the TV guide, and Soul Train would come on and be like, "What? It would be preempted for a Soul Train special." What? How did? Oh man, that's not cool. How this happened? So I was like, oh. so I'd mess around. You know, I had the antenna. I was messing around with. I remember this. I was messing around with the UHF channels, and Day the World Ended was on, and. I see that, you know, I'm talking about the radiation, talking about this. Again, I went through those drills in school, and I was born in the early 60s. So we still had the tail end of the jumping on the desk. You know, radiation, they'd still speak about it a little bit, I guess, Cuban Missile Crisis stuff. So anyway, I'm watching this, and they're talking about the radiation, and then I see the, you know, the, the little glimpses of the monster. And I'm watching it through a snowy TV that's the static. I'm thinking the static is radiation. I'm thinking, like, should I be watching this? I don't know. Am I going to, you know, is something going to happen to me in the morning? Wow. So it always, so it always had that, that feel like I turn on for a few minutes and then I go back to some guys dancing on Soul Train. <laughs> wow. And then go back, you know, because that static to me, when I still see static on the TV, I don't have the memory of like poltergeist. I have the memory of, is that radiation coming to, you know, is that static somehow radiation? Because it sounded like the Geiger counters and, <laughs> you know, for some reason, I was fascinated. I'm still fascinated with those whole atomic war things. So the story itself was all of that come to life. I, I wasn't like I was necessarily afraid of atomic warfare as a child. I just gravitated towards that. And I have the monster. And um, more than anything, what I liked about this movie, which drew me to it as, as far as even being older about it, is this idea of the world changing around you in this case, nuclear vapor, where you are not seeing it, where there's something above the next hill that you're not seeing was very creepy to me. And I, I still really love that theme. I guess like Stephen King's The Mist draws from that in some respect. When you have characters saying like, they're, you know, a creepy guy who's mutating, saying there are wonderful things happening over there. And then he's really evasive. He's not going to tell you what that is. My mind is thinking, you know, you're thinking plants of monsters, whatever's growing out there, your imagination is going wild. And that, that's one reason I really like this particular movie, the fact that it didn't show it, that whatever's going on out there, and then it is going to encroach eventually on what's going on. Sure. And, and I'm sure some of that for better or worse, it's a budgetary thing. You know, they, they can't show this stuff, but I feel like a lot of times when you run into a situation like that, and especially in these genre films, even in something as recent and say like jaws in the seventies, because they can't show it, they get more creative about it and it becomes even more creepy. And I mean, Corman is known for being a low budget guy and this is what is only his fourth film. So he, you know, he's working in some places say nine days shooting schedule, some places say 10 days shooting schedule. It was a quick production. So they didn't have the time. They didn't have the budget to show what was on the other side of the hill. So they made it work some other ways. And it is pretty creepy and disturbing. Again, it's Arkoff and Nicholson, you know, um, I guess James, um, James Nicholson came up with the title again, typical AIP, you know, day world ended. And, uh, you know, and the, and the scenario, because again, it was very timely in the news. This was what, 1955? Yes. Um, mm -hmm. That he came up with the title. And, and interesting enough that um, Paul Blaisdell came up with the idea of it being the valley of a lot. He came up with a lot of scientific things that are in this story that a lot of people might pass on now. But he, it actually was well done out because with uh, Lou Russell, who wrote the screenplay, um, I think who was Arkoff's brother-in-law, and again would write a lot of these. Um, 
he worked hand in hand with them from when they came up with the title. Both of those guys worked it out together. So they worked out the budgetary problems and stuff in the storyline from the beginning, which nobody, it very rarely happens. And they had a lot of scientific reasons. So that isolation, I think, was, you know, it was interesting to know that Blaze Dell said, let's have a valley. And he explained to Russell about all of that, the lead bearing oil and how it could be protected. Right. You know, but he kind of knew. It's very smart filmmaking. I mean, you, you know what your limitations are going to be. You, you find a way to make it work. You put in reasons in the script that don't feel heavy-handed, that don't feel ham-fisted. Of course, this guy who's kind of been – he's almost a doomsday prepper type. I mean, he, he knows that he's in a place – or who knows? He probably bought the, bought the house specifically because it is in that valley with all the lead around it. Who knows? I mean, he's been prepping for all of this, and it makes sense. And if you go out into that fog and you go out until where the radiation is, yeah, that's not a good idea. So we don't have to go out there anyway with the camera. We'll just keep the story in the house and around the house and at that waterfall set. That's all you really need. Yeah, and it's funny now because our sensibility is like they've had doomsday preppers on TV. So this is 1955. So again, people were digging shelters, canned food, a lot of the drills, a lot of the advertising. So in a way, Nicholson and these guys were saying this can kind of be a how-to manual in worst-case scenario. <laughs> you know, like they want to scare you and they want to sell tickets, but they did say like all of these things people were actually doing all that prep. So, so that was kind of interesting from a historic, you know, point of view. He said, "I knew this day would come." Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's very reminiscent of recent things. I think you were talking, you know, with the budgetary restraint. I like the idea that people wind up mutated guys wind up drifting in from this nuclear mist right. in different. Um, you know, I was one of Paul Blaisdell's things. Different metamorphoses. With the more they get up the hill and exposed, the worse they mutate. So you're kind of seeing like the monsters come around and that this can happen to you. And then it's like, well, what can happen to you? And it's like, well, this guy. And then the next guy that comes is worse. Yep. So you're like, wait a minute, this guy? And then finally at the end, I think well, well it's, it's uh, Ruby, the character of Ruby starts freaking out about her skin. Right. She just gets paranoid about this is going to happen to me. It's really interesting. And like I said, it's smart filmmaking, smart writing. Uh, Lou Rosa, uh, Russoff? Is that how it's pronounced? Lou Russoff? Yeah, I believe that's how it's pronounced. You know, I was looking at his credit list, and a, and a lot of the things that he did were, you know, the lower budget stuff, Hot Rod Gang, Ghost of Drag Strip, Hollow, which are a couple of movies that I love. You know, Run, Runaway Daughters, The Street Creature, again, Paul Playsdale stuff. So, I mean, he knew how to write to a lower budget, I guess is what I'm getting at with this. And, yes. you know, he wrote the first Beach Party movie. Without him, we wouldn't have had that run of... Uh, the Frankie Avalon and Annette Fotitello beach party films. Yeah. Which again are also low budget affairs. If you look at them, if you really look at those films, there's not a lot of money there. They probably spent more money on clearing musical rights for any of the bands that might show up in the sequels, but you write to what you know you're going to be able to produce. And I thought it was great. Uh, you mentioned American international. This was actually a uh, American releasing corporation or company, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It was their second movie. This, this, I was, this was the double bill with the phantom from uh... <laughs> the phantom uh, from 10,000 leagues, which I have talked about here on the show Last year, it was episode 262 with artist Tad Galusha. So check that out in the archives. I love old movie press kits and that sort of thing. And I looked up the press kit for this film. <laughs> the press kit for this double feature says, this is the biggest double horror show since Dracula and Frankenstein, which is a bold claim. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far. But they do say that these two monsters are more terrifying than anything ever seen before with strong science fiction stories packed with action and popular stars. 
And my favorite part about this press kit is there's usually a section in which they suggest ways to promote the film in your area. You know, the theater owner gets this, and here's a way you can promote this or that. Their suggestion here to sell seats is to tie in with the public utilities. Your gas and electric companies present an excellent tie-in possibility. Tell them that in the day the world ended, the entire world is cut off from electric power, gas, and other utilities. Window displays and newspaper ads can show what would happen if we were deprived of the everyday appliances we take for granted. Supply the utility company with plenty of production stills and other accessories for their window displays. Okay. I, I work for a power company myself right now. There is no way. <laughs> if some theater owner came to us and said, hey, yeah, you know, we got this, this science fiction movie about the end of the world. Will you help promote it and put some uh, photos on our website? No, it wouldn't. <laughs> but I love that. It's a different time. You know, it's the 50s. So who knows? But I love it. I love it. When I, when I was telling my son, you know, we were going to speak about this movie because he, he knows this is one of my favorites and he likes it as well. He asked me, well, what are we going to speak about? And I said, the screen's new high in Naked Shrieking Terror, which is on the poster. <laughs> so tell your friends. I said, you want your friends to get into this movie? Tell them that. Yeah. Now, the, the, the Ballyhoo and everything else involved with this film, I, I, I just love it. Another thing here is they recommend that uh, in a theater – at your theater, you should arrange to have an ambulance parked out front to take away those who faint and then have somebody dress up as a doctor where you can examine patients to see if they have a weak heart. And if they do, they can't come into the theater. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. even have somebody laid out on a stretcher with a sign that says he couldn't take it. That's what <laughs> Had I dug deep in my father's box of things, I probably would have dug out a gas mask when I watched this when I was a kid. Oh, wow. I probably would have been <laughs> Awesome. Now, this is a fun little film. And, you know, of course, I mentioned The Creature Connection. I'm a big fan of Richard Denning. Huge fan. And the more that I watch films that have him in them, I I feel like his portrayal in Creature is kind of an outlier because Richard Denning is a great leading man. He's a great hero. In Creature, he's the bad guy. You know, he's the the evil human, the bad human who gets what's coming to him. But in this, in Black Scorpion, I mean, he's a great leading heroic man. And I loved him in this. He's really strong and likable. I, was, I used to get him mixed up a lot with Grant Williams in a lot of ways. Yeah, I could see that. You know, because you know, uh, he had that same sort of look. But again, you can bring also he has that kind of James Franciscus too. I mean, there's a certain thing. These guys have a lot of energy, you know, and, and you know, as far as leading men that, uh, yeah, I, I, it's funny because the creature, he does stand out way differently. Like, like maybe he right. was older when he did it or something, but yeah. He, he is really he is really good in this. And I don't know what he actually did before this. We mentioned a couple of his genre pieces. And, you know, later on, he would be on television as the governor of Hawaii in Hawaii Five-0. You know, he did Mr. and Mrs. North and a few other things here and there. I Spy looks like a handful of Western projects. So Creature with the Atom Brain, another one where he's the heroic lead and the hero, which is another great film, a nice proto shoot him in the head style type zombie movie right there. You know, some, some other great stuff, some other great films, but he's not the only great actor in this. I, I was really drawn to touch Connors in this as well. I love, I love the name touch. Was he billed as touch Connors in anything else? I don't really know. I don't think so. I think he's probably changed. I, I right would have away. too. I mean, I love the name, but I would have too. He's Mike Connors for people who don't know, who unfortunately just passed away earlier this year at the age of 91. So he had a, a good long run and he's probably most known, well-known as Joe Mannix from the Mannix TV show. Yeah. which I watched that. Um, yeah. I don't have ago. a lot of experience with it. I, I've watched a few episodes here and there. And when it turns up on like a Comet TV or me TV or something like that, 
I don't think it's actually running right now. But anyway, I've seen a few episodes and I've, I've enjoyed it. I just need to go back and watch it. And after watching this movie, I'm going to go back and watch it for sure. Cause it's, I mean, he's a great villain in this, you know, this sleazy kind of, I got big things happening in San Francisco. I got to get going kind of guy. Give me the gun. You know, that's uh, Tony Lamont. It's like the perfect name for what are the, he's, you know, it's definitely that kind of a character, you know, but it's, he's just so plays it almost over the top, yeah. but he fits the part perfectly. He looks exactly like you'd expect. He does. He does. It just his hair, the way he, his body language and the lines they give him where I go, this gun goes, you know, the, the kind of, you know, I'm going to challenge the big dog here, but not quite, you know, it's, it's really good. There's a subtle performance happening here that I really enjoyed. Well, his interactions with, you know, his girlfriend, Ruby, are, are hysterical, too. You know, he doesn't treat her well at all. You know, he abuses her left and right, and that's just... Yeah. It's, you wonder why she's still with him. Yeah, that, that's not a very healthy relationship right there. Well, and ultimately, it's really not because of what happens to Ruby, played by Adele Jurgens. Was she... Uh, I know they don't flat out say it, and in the remake, they kind of... which probably don't want to talk too much about that they do pretty much imply that she was a stripper yes in the script it says she's a stripper yeah but they don't quite go there in the film well you know in the film she kind of does this burlesque dance i think they make her more of a burlesque artist in the film where she's not like you know she'd still give the act right but but not not go as far and it could have been like the times anyway i think that's the way it's played it's it's very subtle yeah so of course a character like that's going to end up with a character like tony who who knows what he had waiting for him up in Frisco or in the remake LA. It's, I don't know, just not a healthy relationship. And that the captain that, uh, our, our lead guy, the guy who owns the house, let him stay. Well, what was funny about Adele Jurgens is when I, I was kind of doing a little research, seeing what she had done. And I didn't realize she had such problems in her personal life at home. Oh, let's because she was married to the amazing colossal man. Oh, Lang. <laughs> So for, for a lot of years, so I, I, cause I was trying to see, you know, everybody here became this AIP family. There's a big connection. This is the first, one of the first, or if not the first, all of these came together. And I was thinking like, wow, she's, was married for a lot of years to the amazing colossal man, <laughs> you know, which I thought was really, really cool. You know, it was really, really cool. So it's like, well, he had a temper too. So maybe she just liked people with tempers. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. There you go. Maybe uh, She didn't do a lot of genre work. Uh, she does turn up in Abbott and Costello meet uh, the Invisible Man at one point. Not not one of the leads, so I don't believe. I'd have to go back and double check. Darn, I have to watch that movie again. She played a princess in A Thousand and One Nights in 1945. Oh, wow. So at least we get to know that she was treated like a princess after. Hey, there you go. Being thrown off the cliff. Spoilers. Yeah, that was pretty. I was not expecting that, actually. Um it's been a long time since I've watched this movie and this time was probably the first time I watched it with a real critical eye. And I had forgotten that that had happened to Ruby and the way they do it, we don't see any gore. I mean, it's the fifties. So we don't like see her dead body splattered on the rocks, which is fine. We, we don't need that. Right. It's almost more brutal and more jarring the way they do do it because it is just one long lingering shot of Tony throwing her off the cliff. And you see that body just falling and falling and falling and catch a rock and flip and fall and fall and fall and then hit the ground. And then even the sound of it hitting, it's pretty unnerving. Well, before that, you know, he stabs her in the chest. You don't actually see the step. Right. This is for you, lover. Then throws her off. Yep. And then he comes back and he couldn't care less. He's like, she's out there. She's mad at me. She doesn't want to talk to me. 
Right. And again, he gets what's coming to him and good because we, <laughs> we didn't need him. He caused way too much damage beforehand, though. And yeah, I don't know. It's a nice little mix. It, it's one of these stories that, okay, let me back up. Yesterday, as of this recording, yesterday I went to go see the War of the Worlds here in town. Uh, and there, there were a few people there from Monster Kid Radio that joined me afterwards for a quick recording session and not to spoil that conversation, or maybe you've already heard it by now, depending on when I place it in the release schedule. Somebody said that the end of the War of the Worlds was set her up feeling like, okay, now we just need the zombies to show up because it is just this total post-apocalyptic kind of thing happening in town. And now obviously those zombies right. don't show up. It's an alien movie. This film feels very Night of the Living Dead-ish to me, where it could be a zombie thing. It could be an end of the world thing because it's such a a slice of different types of personalities in America. You've got the villain, the, the gangster type. You've got the person who he doesn't really say he's a man of God or he's very religious, but he's got some very strong convictions. You got the guy who's worried about the cold war blowing into something bigger. You got the stripper. You got the, the good old girl next door. You got the guy with the, it's a nice mix of people. And then you put them all together and watch the drama between them happen. And then the monster shows up at the end and that's great. That's a great payoff, but it's fascinating to me to see the story of the people in here, in this little house. And and that's one of the things that I really responded to well in this film this time around. It's this kind of distilling. I mean, it's a little yeah. forced the way they all meet, but, but it is every single archetype you could have. And among them all, they know exactly what they need to know. You know, and, and the conflicts, it's funny because now when you watch um, current stuff like The Walking Dead, or right. even, um, like you said, Night of the Living Dead, The Walking Dead, where you have that group of people. I, I also, that Twilight Zone episode, The Monster on Maple Street, where the Yes, yeah. Because, again, that Jim here, Paul Birch, doesn't want to let them in. He's only done this for five people, and he's planned it for years. And all of a sudden, he's isolated in the middle of nowhere, so to think he's going to get this crowd. And um, it's funny to me, because re-watching it, that opening, it's funny because you have this person, that person, this person. And it seems a little bit funny and forced. And then when you see our old prospector coming down with the donkey or the mule... <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, okay, that's it. Now, nobody, he's got to close this party. Nobody else is coming after him. Yeah, there's just way too many people here at this point. I think it's charming, you know, that, that, that that's in there. But it's, it's funny that even in 1955, where there are people there prospecting in the California hills in 55 or with, with you know, mules, I just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, hmm. I don't know. Actually, I read so I think it's in the script. They had the synopsis that we watched that this actually supposed to have been taking place in the 1970s. You know, in, yeah. Which they, it definitely doesn't feel that way at all. I mean, they don't show anything that it would be increased technological wise. But 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 that was that of it was funny. It's like you know you have the mole and his girlfriend go to would go there. You have the good guy. You have the bad guy. You have the daughter. You know, you know, it, it was nice the way everything fit together. Before watching it for this, the last time I had been exposed to this movie was watching a trailer for it at the drive-in here a few years ago. And the drive-in really kind of takes the most salacious parts of the film and condenses it into like a 90-second bit. And you get the monster and we get the, well, you're just going to have to have a kid, which out of context, I mean... <laughs> It's a little jarring. It's a little jarring in the film overall, but just out of context, it's even more so. This guy has got it all figured out. I mean, he's checked most of his emotions at the door. The, you know, we're going to have to start rebuilding. You're going to have to have a baby. Do you love the guy? 
kind of got the impression that whether she said yes or no, it wasn't going to matter. She's pining over her lost fiance. And all of a sudden she comes in and he sits down and goes like, damn it, I'm a blunt man. <laughs> you should have kids. I'll talk to the boys in the morning. <laughs> that <laughs> was like, straight. Talk to him about what? Just <laughs> that, that's something I'd like to, to talk to you about is that I, I did uh, get you a copy that I have of the first draft of this and this this is one of the things I find interesting that in the early drafts of scripts, they show how well things are brought out, and, and not all the time they make it into the finished picture, either because of the way it's edited or budgeted and things like right. that. And there is this huge story going on in the script with this whole fiance thing that you know Luis has a fiance who you know at the beginning Jim or father the captain who's uh, sheltered this is basically saying. You got to get used to the idea he's not coming back. Right. So she said, then later on, you know, she actually in the script tells Rick that she's engaged to Tom and shows him a photograph of the two of them, right. um, which I think is funny because that's Roger Corman. If you don't know, his cameo is as the fiance in the photograph. Oh, really? And- yeah, he wanted to save money. He did not want to pay an extra just for the photograph. So if you look in the movie, his cameo is her fiance. He's Tom in the photograph. Nice. No, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, later on, she starts hearing these voices in her head, and she tells Rick, and he doesn't believe her. He's kind of going along with it. And she actually winds up carrying that photo with him. This is not in the movie. In the script, she carries the photo with him outside to a point where Rick at the point says that he in the script, he says, I'm getting a little jealous of that picture. Yeah. And she promises never to bring it again. And then she asks him about, you know, do you leave in telepathy? And he says, you know, it's very possible. You know, at the end, when the creature winds up being killed, which this is uh, something we can get into. But as far as the thing goes, she says that she always had this connection with the creature because she can kind of hear it in her head. Right. It's alluded to the creature is Tom. It is her boyfriend. Um, or fiance that has been mutated, which again, had that been more clearly illustrated, like it is in the script, it would have even been more creepy that it's somebody you know, and it would have been more heartbreaking yeah. and more um, tragic. Yeah, more tragic. And what's interesting, and following on that, I was the biggest surprise I read in the script is one of the last shots before the surviving um, Rick and Louise make it out of this valley. Um, to start their new life, I guess, to have children, is that there's a shot of the creature dead, and the camera pans down to see in his hand a crumpled photograph, which is the same photograph, just a smaller version of it. Right. Of the, of Tom and Louise. So that, uh, without a doubt, it was Tom. It was her fiancé. And I think that would have had so much more punch and impact, that one shot of the creature having the photo you know, really showing this could have happened to you. It wasn't just a, um, it's definitely kind of, yeah. there's a real connection here. And there's a reason why he's trying to get back to the house. Cause he knows the house. He knows. Yeah. Which it is. It's really, it's really heartbreaking. I mean, there's that leap of thing. Like I think I, t- I mentioned, we were watching the Cyclops. I think I mentioned you earlier. And, um, there's the whole thing where she sees the Cyclops and she doesn't realize, wait, that's my fiance who's crashed. And, you know, that's him, you know, kind of hits later that, you know, she doesn't really realize ever that that was Tom. Yeah. You don't get that in the movie. That would have been a lot more tragic, you know, had, had that been, but then again, I guess that would have stepped on like Richard Denning had killed him out of self-defense. That would have gotten all that really 
muddled, I guess. Uh, yeah, it would have changed that that particular uh, the tone of that particular arc there or that little story moment. But that's inter- that's yeah, it's I I've looked at the script uh I, again, I, I thank you in person. I want to thank you again. Thanks for sending me a copy of this screen, the screenplay. It's been a fascinating read. There aren't a lot of huge changes, but the changes that are in here would make a huge impact on the film. Does that make sense? Yes, like that. That change was the biggest one I saw because it's the the bones of it are there. And again, I definitely think it's just part of the filmmaking process that Carmen is interested in the bigger picture. The subtle bring that out but i think at the time it was a 10-day shoot under a hundred thousand dollars it's 10-day shoot i think these little pieces when they're lost they definitely add up to something and that's what that's what it was nice for myself to read that in the script to say wow that really was there there's also a lot of depth as far as at the beginning of the script she's plants this plant and and it really symbolizes in the script the passage of time because they're there for months and there's a part in the, in the movie where Richard Denny goes to her, that's doing great, that plan of the future. And she's saying yes, and they're starting to be romantically involved. And she's moving on from, you know, missing her fiancé, and their relationship is starting to go. And I think at the end, she actually takes the plant with her. But there's this own subtext of this plant that's just starting to grow. And it gives, it's hope. It gives you this hope growing. And they're talking about that the rain is this looming threat because it could bring down all the radiation on their heads. And they're always worried about the rain and the plant. It's almost the opposite of that. It, and, and that's um, from a screenwriter, like you were saying, how well written this is. That's a very subtle thing to pick up on. Um, even the atomic bomb sound at the beginning definitely shows at the end when the rain is coming, they have the thunder, and the thunder is like the blast of the bomb at the beginning. So it has that kind of tie-in in a way. You know, that again is very subtle, but, you know, as filmmakers and people that watch this stuff and even look out for it, you see, you know, usually most of this stuff, if not all, of it, is intentional. You do pick up on it. So it's, um, you know, as this little low-budget, you know, monster movie dealing with the, uh, an issue of the time, there are a lot of subtle things that when you look into it, it was really, really, you know, well brought out. It's really fascinating. And to know that this came from Corman, I think for people who aren't really, well, in as deep as you and I are when it comes to the fandom or or the listeners of the show, I think when people start thinking Roger Corman, they think, well, it's low budget, it's cheap, it's schlocky, it's, it can't have the, the kind of depth that you would get with somebody else. But I feel like there is a lot of depth here. Just even what did make it to the film from the script, that bit with that plant. Yeah, that that's amazing. And the way the movie ends, I mean, I know it's kind of funny, haha, but instead of saying the end, as they're walking away, it says the beginning. And that's, that, that just gives you a nice sense of hope after you've gone through this kind of tragic story where everybody but two people survived. I mean, not even the, and, I'm an animal lover, which so kind of bummed me out. But not even the donkey survived. Yeah, which they're, they're pretty t- tasteful in, in not showing that. But again, I, I like this genre. Like I like Panic in Year Zero. You know, um, which is much more you know Ray Milland's movie. Which I much, love that film. I love that film. It's more realistic in its depiction of a family. The bomb goes off. How they have to isolate themselves again from yeah. everything going wrong. You know, yeah. and people, people again being the main thread again, that Walking Dead kind of thing. As much as I, I love that movie, and again, it has a lot of things with the the Bible kind of thrown in there subliminally. 
that I like, but the addition of the atomic mutinous, uh-huh. you know, and I don't know if it, well, it definitely wasn't done before this, but it's that iconic, you know, mutant that's that stereo, you know, now it's become stereotypical. It's that iconic mutant that the way it was imagined. And AIP did this a lot, like even with the invasion of the saucermen, with that iconic Martian. Yeah. The more we know about scientific knowledge, the more we get away from that wild, you know, look. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about Paul Blaisdell um, in this. Yeah, well, you know, I, we, we talk about Paul Blaisdell off and on here on the show, probably not nearly as much as we should, because you're right. Uh, there is an iconic look to that. And as we know more about how radiation really affects people, no, they're not going to grow a third eye immediately. That's not going to happen to them. That's that that's very fantastical. But it's an iconic monster. And you mentioned invasion of the invasion of the saucer man. I mean, to me, if we're ever invaded by aliens, I want them to look like that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm amazed that, like, again, when you read, um, there's a great book, Paul Blaisdell, monster maker. By it's a great Randy book. Palmer. I recommend it to everybody. I know myself just working on films that, you know, I love initial concepts and I like the original ideas. A lot of stuff just gets lost by the wayside. It's nature of the business. I'm surprised, especially with Blaisdell, by how well this, this stuff was thought out. And a mm-hmm. lot of people dismiss it, but like this creature design, the idea of like the gradual metamorphosis, like the web-like makeup was supposed to show that it spreads, you know, mm-hmm. visually. But the atomic mutant itself, he kind of figured you have an irradiated world, it should have thick armor, plating. The eyes, though, because he thought because of the bright flash, your eyes would literally be blasted out of its sockets, blown out. So to compensate, it would not only give you bigger eyes, but three of them. Right. Um, it, the bones would be deformed because, like the you know, the creature has an elongated head, ears. That was to promote that whole telepathy idea, and that its brain would actually be larger. The radiation sickness has like rotted teeth, nose bones collapsing. But then I love the fact like he has this thing that although nature would work to improve you to survive in this world, it would have the missteps, which I, is kind of like a thing in all of Blaisdell's work, which is like the malformed little arms coming off of his shoulders. Yeah. Showed that that was a path that the mutation was taking, but it didn't go fully. It wasn't working. So it shows like nature trying to adjust a human being to live in this world, but that was some like a, a branch that didn't work. So it shows that that is brilliant to me, just that whole thinking process. Like originally that specific aspect of the creature were, were gonna be tentacles, were gonna be at his shoulders, I believe at his waist and even at his knees. But again, with the budgetary reasons they, they couldn't do it. That thing where he says, let's have everything working to make this, build a better monster for a radiation world. But then let's have a couple of things just mess up because this was a path that, well, it kind of needed more arms, but maybe it didn't. So it's halfway. But it shows this uniqueness and a way of thinking that is really unique. Like you usually don't have monster designers or makers think about something and cut it short. They usually take it to the end and let's give them four arms. Let's not like take him to a halfway. It's smart monster design. Blaisdell does not get enough credit. He, he really doesn't. Even during his life, I don't feel like he got enough credit. No. I, I feel like now maybe with people like you, me, uh, Bob Burns, you know, the fans, he gets more notice and acclaim. But man, he really was a, a groundbreaking monster maker. 
with the way he would think about these things. And it, to me, it makes sense. Of course, if you're designing a monster, you're going to want to make it fit in its environment. And you want to think about the evolutionary steps. And I mean, that's how evolution works. Sometimes something doesn't work out. So it goes down another path. And to make, to represent that in one monster suit, that's genius. That's genius. His first monster suit, and he had to figure out how to build it without moles and anything else. You know, he built it over long johns. He cut out foam. The head was all like built up. But it's funny because as tough as it was for him to technically pull off, uh-huh. he did not just eliminate ideas. He kept every one of these ideas in and did it to the best of his ability. Everybody said, oh, I don't know how to do those horns, so I can't make a mold. But he would actually paint candles with latex. And use those. You know, he would do whatever he could to get that idea across. Mm-hmm. And um, everything's there for a reason. And I like that. It wasn't just a cool design. Right. You know, because usually it's always better coming from a, a design. Most of his creatures are like that. That's why they're so out, outlandish, I guess, because he's, he's definitely got it. Well, it's like it conquered the world, Beulah. Well, this was actually, people don't know, this was Marty the Mutant was his nickname. <laughs> you know, yeah. the mutant here. You know, Marty the Mutant. And the Beulah was the, it conquered the world. And again, he had a whole thing that he wrote out that it was in caves that would be wet because Venus would be wet and damp and it would be non-ambulatory. It wouldn't move a lot. Right. You know, it would just be stationary. He had the, all of the scientific worked out. He didn't just say He'd work from that idea. He did not work with what would look cool, what would be the way it was. I mean, monster design, even myself with projects that I like or or do, it's like the more we know about science, Uh the more it limits the creativity. I'd like to live in a world where, well, not that it would be safe, but if if these kind of mutations would be in the 1950s and you'd have giant mans and ants and stuff like that, it's not fun thinking you're just going to be on chemo, losing your hair, and that's the result of atomic bombs. But there's always a different kind of bomb. It's like, you know, I've read us recent stories that are very scientific and it takes away that mystery. Like, I think um, you're probably brought up on another show about the atomic mutation effect that in the um, the old days, it used to be the uh, chemistry. It used to be the alchemy right. was what people didn't understand. And then in the 30s, it was all about Frankenstein electricity, yeah. you know, the magnetic monster, electricity forces. Then we get to know electricity and then we go into the atomic age. And then we start to get to know that. Now we're into you know, genetics. Yeah. And we get to know about genetics. And now all of the genetics is kind of wearing its course. And now it's virtual reality. It's artificial intelligence. You know, not even a physical. So everybody has whatever science we don't understand or, or is the cutting edge. All the creativity comes from. But it's kind of like, you know, you look at this stuff and you're like, boy, giant ants would have been kind of interesting. You know? <laughs> like I said, not safe, but it's romanticized in kind of a, well, a monster lover's way. <laughs> so instead of sitting around saying, where's my jet pack? We're sitting around saying, where's my giant ants? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> well, we're not like, you know, like I said, I brought up my son before and it's funny because we, I share with him, he's 18. We share a lot of these kind of movies and a lot of love for them. And he's like, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, when you're around 2050, 2060, when I'm long gone, I said, you're going to look at all these cars and you're going to go, yep, they're still not fine. But gas is sure, sure a lot more expensive. Right, exactly. You know, I, uh, we were dri- we watched something the other day, and we were driving uh, the car, and, and we were looking at it and said, you know what, it's so disappointing. 
wrong. It's 2017. I want flying cars. Where's my flying cars, I, I right? Want, <laughs> I want half of something with something else walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where's the Jetson stuff? It's like, you know, it, I know what it was. We watched Soul McQueen and sad enough, we said that's probably the most accurate depiction of where we're going. <laughs> I know my wife would love a shower from the Jetson. It's just, you know, conveyor belt go through it boom you're done in like 30 seconds good to go so so it's great to see like ideas spring from this this was brand new this was the first atomic unit this this technology they they didn't know i've myself read uh, just research all this fun stuff about how you have to wash your hands and then you have to wash what you washed your hands with and you have to put on the gloves you know just to not touch things the way uh, right. it works and, and that and obviously fallout's not a miss but the, but the idea of saying of bringing, they brought together the collective fears of everybody at the time. Yeah, I could definitely see at the time this being um, well, got a pretty decent rating. That you know, I know a lot of kids did find it scary and terrifying just because of the time it was in. Right. You know, I, I made a comment earlier, and then as soon as it was out of my mouth, I thought, you know, I'm gonna have to edit that out because I I don't want to downplay the scariness of it and. and I think there is some real terrifying things in here. Uh, I think it still holds up now, especially when you consider in the 50s, this was a concern. Atomic horror was the thing. Um, well, not the thing. That was somewhere. But you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> but atomic horror was was the thing when it came to these types of movies. And, I mean, Richard Denning fought it a couple of different times. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, it's just really interesting to look at this kind of stuff and – and to consider what people then thought, whether it was Blaisdell or Russoff writing the script, what would happen if, if a bomb dropped here. And you look at uh, Panic in Year Zero, you get the 60s take on it. And it's just fascinating to me on that level alone that we happen to have some good actors and actresses and a decent story. I mean, that's just gravy. You know, that's good, too. That's a bonus. But to, just to have that kind of historical view on it, I dig that a lot. Well, and, you know, the characters themselves act like they would act. You know, they're trying to figure out. They don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I don't – to me, it's all that vagueness about, like, the Jim Madison, the, the Paul Birch talking about these mysterious forces out there. Right. And that idea, that idea of uh, Raddick, which is the guy who's mutating slowly, that he can actually travel among both worlds. And when he goes up there and he says, um, there's more of them up there, stronger. You know, and then they ask him what's going on, and he says things like, you know, wonderful things are happening. It's beautiful, it's yeah, big. yeah, it's, whoa. Even today, if something had happened, well, you know, even with the situation now, if a bomb did drop, if a new weapon was used, what would that do? You would not know. There's no radio. There's no communication with anything. I mean, that would be the first thing to go out. Right. About that. And, and it's interesting, because nothing about him being the, King of the Hill, kind of a thing, you know, um, <laughs> is interesting. And then, you know, and, and, then, and having a military captain who's kind of used to being in charge. And I think he says to him at one point, like, um, you like giving orders. Me too. Yeah. At the very beginning, when he sends Tony over, to, which, okay, if, if there's any big plot holes in the script that I wish could be corrected, it's, it's stupid. It's a little nitpick. He tells Tony to go to his room and change his clothes. Uh, Tony doesn't know where his room is. He just got that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. 
but when he comes back from changing the clothes, he makes a comment. You've got some fancy clothes in that closet. Something about, you know, he, he's got military gear. You know, when I rewatch it, he says, right away, after these guys have the scuffle, after Rick and Tony have the scuffle, he goes, you, you men are sleep in my room. <laughs> They're going to kill each other in their sleep. Right. Uh, but again, it's a neat little mix of characters to have this drama happening and, and seeing how they all deal with it and what's important to the characters. I mean, the prospector wants sugar for his burrow, Diablo, which, by the way, awesome, best name ever for a donkey. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but really, he's making some moonshine. <laughs> so, oh, no, and Ruby, Ruby's the one that calls him out on it. She says, like, when the next batch is done, you know, I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're really doing. And, you know, instead of turning him in or, or ratting him out, she just wants some of it. <laughs> Hook me up. So, you know, that, that was Ray Manhattan, which I love that myself. When you discover these movies and you know a lot of these 50s players, they were all in here. I mean, he was the, the old guy in uh, Invasion of the Saucer Man, like those darn kids, you know, that, that ain't, you know. That ain't, that's alcohol, you know, that ain't gasoline I smell it. I mean, to see him in this, you know, and he was in a lot of westerns. Jonathan Hayes is is one of the guys that comes that's mutated at the beginning. Yeah. You know, he's the guy that comes down and warns them or something. So it's just like to see Jonathan Hayes in there and then, you know, again, all these faces. Paul Birch, I love watching just the Beast of the Million Dollars just for Paul Birch. Yeah. I like Paul Birch and, I, and not of this earth. Yep. You know, He's perfect as that role. And then it's funny because I know, like, Larry Buchanan did the remake of this, of course. Which, okay, um, Larry Buchanan has a certain aesthetic. Uh, The way Larry Buchanan became involved with this and the remake is he remade a handful of these movies that AIP held the rights to. And he remade them for television as TV movies. And, you know, you get to see John Agar in in, in, uh, Zontar, the the thing from space. Whatever, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. you need to see him in Zontar, which is cool. The remake of this uh, has a different title as well. I wrote it, I lost it just a second. I had it just a oh, second. I have it. In the year 2889. Right. And, and the interesting story about that is again, it's Arkoff and Nicholson, right? Somewhere along the line, I think one of them came up with this, Tabari Nicholson came up with this title. And it was supposed to be this big futuristic landscape of flying cars, this thing. And Paul Blaisdell was called in and designed a lot of this stuff. <laughs> but the project wound not not going anywhere. And Paul Blaisdell was like, Blaisdell was disappointed by it. So this thing stayed in the you know arsenal forever. So if you can make this remake, they were like, gotta use this title. Yeah, we already got the title. Nothing to do with that. Obviously, I would think not in the year twenty eight eighty nine. Although. We're in the year 2017, and you threw me on that, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And the remake is almost word for word in terms of the script. It, it's almost – they changed San Francisco to L.A., and instead of a waterfall, they use a swimming pool to bathe in. Um, but overall, it's almost a straight-up word for word remake. Not exactly shot for shot, but – I mean, it's okay. You know, like I said, Buchanan's got a certain aesthetic. Sometimes I like him. Sometimes I feel like, yeah, he's just doing the best he can for a paycheck because he's got three days to make a movie. Well, the, the casting is interesting because the, the sleazy guy, he's no Tony Lamont. He has more charisma. You know, Touch Connors has much more charisma. Yeah. But this guy still comes across as pretty sleazy. He does. <laughs> you know, it's funny because the Ruby character in the 
the Larry Buchanan one, she is a little bit more suggestive of the stripping thing. Oh, yeah. And the Paul Birch character, the captain guy, he's so much more of like a, a tight, by the books kind of guy that he actually gets the record when she's there and it breaks it. <laughs> right. And I don't know his name, but it is that a lot of the stock characters that were in Buchanan's movie were in it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's fun, it's fun to see it in that, in that respect. It's funny because I, I know, I think I had it on... And we were like, this sounds really familiar. And it's literally, it is, it's word for word. Pretty much. The creature does not, it's, it looks like this horrible mask with like white hair, like an old man mask. It doesn't go near Paul Blaisdell's invention. All of that thought out design of the creature or the subtleties is lost. I don't think they have any of that. Yeah, that, that is probably for me, as much as I do enjoy that aesthetic of Buchanan, sometimes the monster design typically doesn't live up for me. That, that's probably the, my lowest point of, of most of those films that he remade uh, for AIP for TV. I mean, you just can't top Blaisdell. You can't top for this type of movie for knowing what he put into it. You can't top it. Well, being that this is literally, it is literally word for word, there's no reason why you would not watch the original. I mean, he's not bringing really anything to it all besides the color, and that's not, you know, as, as well, you know, broad as it is. Also, you know, Ronald Stein did the music for the, uh, yes. And it's a really great score, and he has a, a, there's a separate man, I don't know his name off that, who did the, um, theremin. I don't know either, but there is some theremin in here. Yeah, it's to whenever the creatures, and, and it's funny because that, again, was an early use of the film, and again, it's the 50s, but it really does lend itself to this whole thing. I know in the script, it's funny because when Louise supposedly hears in her head this creature, you don't hear a voice. In the script, it's noted uh, by most of us either make it mechanical or musical, and they wound up using that little tone and wound up using the um, theremin to give that little bit of out of the wellness. And at the time it wasn't cliched. So it really does give you this weird sound as well in the sound design and the score itself. Right. Well, Ronald Stein did a lot of AIP work and I'm a big fan of his work. I have a lot of Ronald Stein on my iPod and in my musical collection. And the way the sound was used when the monster shows up at the end is great. Big fan of that. And then, you know, you mentioned that record that she's dancing to in the original, he also did the music for that that song that she's dancing to, and they actually called it the science fiction or the SF blues. And mm-hmm. supposedly, sheet music was available at one point, which I'd love to get my hands on and, and just kind of hear that re- redone away from the film, just to kind of have it. So I think that's kind of neat that at one point, there's, there's a sheet music for it somewhere out there. So if anybody's got it. Although I don't want to encourage anybody to dance to it in this house. Yeah, probably not. It's funny because, again, we've been talking a lot about this film, and I just want to encourage people to see it. And, again, it's a curiosity because everybody who's in it, and, and again, um, just because of time, I think people will think it might be more cliched or standard. But, again, these early ones are what everybody built off of. And it has a lot of those isolation themes, survivalist themes, mm-hmm. the scientific themes. And there are a lot of little you know, little subtleties in there that, it, you know, for a little movie, for one of Roger Corman's just um, or Sam Markoff and, the, you know, AIP, for those guys just to want to make money and come up with a little thing, they tapped into a lot. They probably could have dumbed it down a lot more than they ever did. There is a lot here. It's not just a little throwaway, let's get some butts in the seat or cars in the drive-in type movie. There's more to it than that. So I would also agree, check this movie out. 
uh, if you haven't seen it or if you have seen it, give it another shot. I don't know if you need to watch it with a double feature with Phantom from 10,000 Leagues, which I also enjoy, but it's it's the lesser of the two on that double no, bill. didn't do the creature for no, that. No, he so. did not. I want to talk a little bit about Kong before we wrap up here, because you've got a Kong project. My buddy Jim Davidson, uh, Fanimation, we've been working together for years, and we have our own little pet projects, things we want to see as monster kids, things we like to do. So we've done a couple of... Uh, you know, test shots of the Cyclops from Seventh Voyage of Simbad, of Wampa Tauntaun from Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> things that kind of like we'd like to see, bucket list things. Right. And um, Jim is an expert. He has a passion for stop motion animation, which a lot of us do. Sure. And Kong was always that iconic epitome. And we said, wow, I would have loved to be there when, they, when Melissa Bryan was doing Kong. I would have loved to be in the audience when Carl Denham was showing Kong. And we'd be like, you know, this would be fun to do. And Jim uh, made an exact replica of Kong. And our project is um, Carl Denham's Giant Monster. And we're working on a, a short film just for ourselves. And we're basically recreating the theater scene from the original 1933 Kong. Recreating the, the, the set of the auditorium, um, the whole stage, um, the actors. And trying to make it like that bucket list thing. Trying to make it where ourselves and everybody else that's fan of this would be in the audience right watching this show unfold you know we definitely changed the show we had a lot of surprises but you know it's that what would it be like to walk into a movie uh to the denim's show in 1933 sit in that audience and watch this show um like what would would that be and a lot of us have seen the movie so many times it's an experiment for us to say can we get a little bit of that feeling can we capture that magic about what it would be like you know to to do that kind of uh be that fly in the wall be in that theater we're going to show uh perspectives uh things that we would have liked to see we'd have liked to see a ticket of kong we, what what pictures did the photographers take things that you've never seen that we you know we've never seen that we'd like to see and because we're um filmmakers visual effects artists we're fortunate enough that we can do it so we figured well if if nobody else is going to make what we want to see in this specific case we'll just have to make it ourselves it's kind of bucket list thing and i and i and i hope you know other monster kid radio you know listeners really are born and would like to see the same thing like i said we'd love to do a lot more of these and it's it's an experiment it's definitely a challenge you said you want Monster Kid Radio listeners to enjoy. You are making this for people like us, man. Come on. This sounds amazing. I mean, we were talking for a while before uh, earlier, and just, just hearing your enthusiasm about it, I can't wait to see that enthusiasm on screen because I know it's going to be awesome. Oh, well, that, thanks so much. I'm really passionate about it. It's something – a lot of things – a lot of new things I see, there are a lot of things I see that are great. There are a lot of things that are not so great. But it's really hard to see what you want to see. I want to see this. I'm gonna, I know you have guests on that are doing, which I, I love doing on Monster Mash novels right. and story. Because this is what I want to see. And they kind of realize, you know, nobody else is going to tap into that. I'll do it myself. Right. And they can imagine it. We're fortunate enough that we technically can do this, which, again, it's, it's a challenge and it's surprising to us. But when it works out, we're like, wow, we can actually – do a 1933 Kong that looks like a 1933 Kong with the current technology and, and our abilities. And it really, 
you're like, well, let me do it then. I want to see it. Right. You know, it's, it's a bucket list thing. You know, um, you can't travel back in time. Well, you had mentioned that if I could travel back in time, I'd see Jack Pierce putting on the makeup. Right. Yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, this is literally, like, this is our way of trying to get that kind of feeling. Like, can it? It's an experiment. We don't know if it'll elicit that same kind of feel. Like, I, I told you, it's like we're shot by shot recreating that theater scene. People that have seen Kong know that theater scene. Right. So we're looking at, like, a new performance. And not a better performance, because I think it's probably was done the best it could be. But for you to sit there, to see Kong on stage, to see Denim, to see this show that is new for you, if you get a little bit of that tinge, like, wow, you might get that feeling of what it was first like. Again, until I sit down when this is completed and watch it myself, I don't even know if I'll like elicit that feeling in myself, but that's kind of what we're, we're going for, you know, and it's the monster kids that would kind of touch in. So it's, it's definitely experimental. Uh, I am eager to hear how it goes and I'm going to ask you to keep me posted on it because like I said, just hearing what you you said about it, just <laughs> it sounds awesome. The idea of of actually seeing what it would have been like if you were there in the theater, it's just pretty mind blowing to me. I myself am surprised. I've been doing this stuff for years, but I'm surprised what a challenge it is. But also how how well it's turned out. And I'm thinking like, wow, this is actually you know from playing with little Kong toys when I was five or six to actually, you know, oh, I'm making my little con movie to making this con movie. Right. The process itself, which again, unfortunately the audiences aren't going to be able to experience is a bucket listing ourselves. I mean, using a stop motion puppet for Kong, the exact replica of Kong itself and the way it's a big thing to move. It takes a lot of energy and to do that hour on end and light it. And I know that, um, joints broke. Um, it has to be cable connected and you have to fix the mid shot. You know, and we have the fortune of computer computers now to help us regauge stuff and reline things up. So it just makes it more appreciative. I know uh, Jim, who's animated this stuff, is just saying this is, um, you know, it's a bucket list thing. He got to animate King Kong. Who else has done that? Willis O'Brien has done that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a new appreciation for what obstacles. And they were inventing the technology. We're just recreating and reusing it. We have the advantage of digital. So, like, just you're learning a lot and you're like, wow. And that's kind of like our similar project. They weren't meant to be anything new. It was just like, let's play an ILM sandbox. Let's do, um, playing the Harryhausen sandbox. But Kong was like the ultimate, you know, sandbox to play in to try to get just to do it. So there's a lot of experience we've learned. I mean, even the littlest technical things I've had to blow up shots of the original, nine seven to nine hundred times oh, to see details and i had to use the most advanced software to get something clear enough so i could recreate it yeah like i think i mentioned nothing in this film is from king kong everything every stitch of every curtain is all recreated i painted the main curtains everything's matte paintings everything's miniatures everything's a built kong we said from the beginning which was probably harder it was definitely hard on us we didn't want to use any car uh, shots of the original car right that's a masterpiece and shouldn't be touched jim and i even said that in our animation we did not duplicate anything that Kong does in any shot so if you see Kong breaking down the wall of the theater we don't show that shot if you see Kong doing this we don't redo any of 
Willis O'Brien shots. The Holy Grail to us are iconic. Mm-hmm. If you want to see those shots, we can always go look at the original. It was just some. It was just something for ourselves. We wanted to say this is what we want to be, you know, responsible for. It's, it's kind of like a little experience. It's it's just a short film, but we're hoping it's more like an experience. It sounds amazing, and please keep me posted on that. And we'll we'll talk more about it down the line too. I'm sure as we get closer to its completion and as you go along, there is so much more I could talk to you about, man. Before we wrap up, big thanks to you for being part of the show and for inadvertently helping me keep my monster kid flame alive in the '90s with the makeup that you did in the Backstreet Boys video. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. Which I'd love to talk to you about some more on the show in the future too. If the listeners don't mind me talking about a boy band on Monster Kid Radio, I think it could be fun. Well, you know what's funny is I also was involved in like Meatloaf music videos where he played the Phantom, you know, things like that. So I, there are a couple of music videos in there. Also, the Devo Monster Man thing. There's a bunch of music videos monster related. So that could be a whole topic on itself. Oh, that could be fun. Oh, that could be a lot of fun. You know, so there we go. That's how I can justify a boy band on the show. There we go. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So at the beginning here, I mentioned forward productions. Is that the main place to go to find stuff about you right now? Well, forwardproductions.com, it's great because it's Robert and Dennis Skotak. Um, I've been working for them on and off probably the last at least the last 10 years, and they're iconic miniature makers and stuff like that. I'm in charge of digital stuff there. So if you go on that website, which is forwardproductions.com, it's the number. So it's right. for. And there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, you can see a lot of cool behind the scenes stuff. We did actually experiment on the original Godzilla, where they extended the matte painting. They uh, just tweaked a bunch of the digital effects. I mean, the. Um, Practical effects, scaling sparks, doing things like that. That could be interesting for people. Okay. A bunch of behind-the-scenes photos. So so for bigger things, I'm involved with those guys. So definitely go to that site. For my own present, for the comic project, we have a Facebook page called Den of Giant Monster, which I'll give you the link for that. And that, that game's brand new. It has a bunch of preview shots. I'm currently working on a trailer for that. Hopefully... Um, Maybe by the time this uh, is played, that'll be out. And then a lot more behind-the-scenes photos just before and after comparing the original to ours. There's all, And then there's also our YouTube channel where you can see a lot of our experiments, especially for the Monster Kid stuff. Okay. You know, the old stuff. And that's... Uh, that's a Schultz studio. I'll give you, I'll give you the links to all these so you can put them in the notes. Yeah, I'll definitely put them in the notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Huge thanks to Joseph for being part of the show this week. Check out Forward Productions, but also head over to YouTube and look up Atomic Age Joe. That's the name of his channel, and that's where you're going to see behind-the-scenes footage of his production of Denim's Giant Monster. Carl Denim's Giant Monster. Check that out. Also, you can look up Carl Denim's Giant Monster on Facebook to see some of the video tests they've been doing over there as well with some things involving Star Wars and Harryhausen. Some really cool stuff. Again, there will be a link in the show notes. And yeah, we got to find some more movies to talk about because we could talk for hours, like I said. Thanks again, man. Creature with the Atom Ray. A motion picture shot full of thrills based on scientific facts described in leading national magazines. You'll be hypnotized. You'll be terrorized. You'll be paralyzed. See a dead man come from beyond the grave. See Columbia Pictures startling... Creature with the Atom Ray.
A great new motion picture in the world's newest motion picture process, Cinemagic. The wonder of the added fourth dimension. With Cinemagic, you are actually on the first rocket ride to Mars in the Angry Red Planet. You feel the dizzying heights of their fantastic city of mile-high buildings. You'll shiver as you ride the River of the Dead. Your depth perception will increase a thousandfold as you look into the waters that lead to foreverness. And the terrors you meet on Mars are beyond man's imagination. The Rat-Bat Spider. So real in Cinemagic, you'll feel the crazed stare of its blinded eyes, the tearing shock of its iron claws, the giant amoeba. Like an earth germ only a hundred million times larger. Thrills, shocks, terrors, and your first glimpse of the life and the world of Mars. All are yours to experience in The Angry Red Planet in Eastman 5250 color from American International. C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. From billions of light years away, I approach your planet. The birds of the air, the animals of the forest. They shall be my ears and my eyes. And because I see your most secret acts, you will know me as the beast with a million eyes. From worlds beyond comes a weird and wanton intelligence, a beast with a million eyes, making of a woman's dog her attacker. Setting up by flames of wild desire, making of a man's friend, a violator of every code of decency, guilty of acts you'll never believe. See a man fight against supernatural forces for the girl he loves. See a beast with a million eyes control a ship from outer space. One of the most fantastic terror thrills the screen has ever brought you. See the beast with a million eyes. <laughs> 
right, so that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm going to mention it again here. If you have any feedback, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call the voicemail line. It's 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you want to talk to movie The Day the World Ended, if you want to talk about anything that we've talked about in the previous 349 episodes, feel free to call it in. I'd love to hear from you and put you in a future episode of the show. Of course, this is all available on our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's links to everything that we talk about here in the show, including a link to Forward Productions, the company that Joseph Schultz works with. It's the number four and then W-A-R-D productions.com. Again, links in the show notes. Check out their show reel. They've done some really cool work. Of course, there's links to all the music that we play here on the show, a link to our Patreon campaign, and a link to our Tee Public store where you can buy a t-shirt. We have a handful of t-shirts with Monster Kid Radio logos on them. You know the posters that I do, the classic monster movie posters where the titles replace with the words Monster Kid Radio in the style of the movie poster. Well, some of these are available on t-shirts over at tpublic.com. Go look up Monster Kid Radio over there or again, follow the link in the show notes. I also have a couple of other fun little shirts on there like Monster Movies and Chill or Cthulhu and Chill in the Netflix logo and the red. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of those. Actually, I think they're kind of funny, especially the Cthulhu and Chill t-shirt. I really need to buy one of those for myself. Anyway, you can support the show that way. Every time you buy a shirt over there, I get a buck or two, which is kind of nice. I'll also embed in the show notes a trailer for the movie that we're going to be talking about next week on the show. Friend of the show, Stephen E. Sullivan. He's coming back again this time around. We're going to be talking about a movie that I like that I found a lot of people just aren't a big fan of. And I understand their reasoning, but darn it, I love 1968's Curse of the Crimson Altar. On the anniversary of the night they burn Lavinia Morley, many strange and sinister dreams are experienced. But are they dreams? Or are they the signs of the curse of the Crimson Altar? How are these wild parties and an antique dealer investigating witchcraft connected with this house of horrifying secrets? Get out. Go while you can. What mysteries live within these ancient walls? Who is Robert Manning looking for? Why is he in danger? When will he find the hidden truth? I am Lavinia, mother of the mysteries, keeper of the black secret. Lavinia's influence has spanned the centuries, maintained her innocence up to the very end. They didn't believe her and burned her at the stake. Many people have died mysteriously, horribly. There's always been a link between those who burn the vineyard and those who die. My brother stayed here, didn't he? My brother Peter. Tell me what happened to him! Curse of the Crimson Altar brings together the two masters of horror. Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee. Mark Eden in his most powerful performance. I know there's something wrong going up in that lodge, and if you're not going to help me, I'm going to do it myself. Barbara Steele as Lavinia, Queen of Terror. Michael Goff as her unwilling slave. And introducing Virginia Wetherill, guest star Rupert Davies. Curse of the Crimson Altar. What ghostly legend was he caught up in? 
Who was the living link with Lavinia? Why was he tormented by these ghoulish nightmares? Fine. When did this frightening fantasy become startling reality? This is a very deep cut. Do you know it looks as though you've been stabbed? I think I was. It's also known as the Crimson Cult. We're going to talk a little bit about that different title as well as the different Blu-ray release next week on the show. So come back for that. And that episode will be the first episode coming out in 2018. All right, so let's talk a little bit about 2018. What's coming up next for Monster Kid Radio? What does the next year look like? Well, I've already talked about this before. I'll mention it again. Monster Bash, of course, during the summertime. I'm going to have a table there. Cannot wait for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Plus, any local conventions that I can find that happen to have horror or monster content, I'm going to make sure I hit up as well. The Rose City Comic Con is typically good for that. That sort of thing. Maybe Wizard World Portland. We'll see what happens. Also, I'm going to do a little bit more of the Joy Cinema, I hope. And I've got some DVD commentary work in the works. So hopefully we'll actually have an official DVD commentary by me put out on DVD and Blu-ray. That, that's going to be a lot of fun. I also have a lot of writing in the works, some fiction and some nonfiction, potentially a memoir. No, not really a memoir thing. That's not, that, I don't know. Some nonfiction stuff that'll be coming out. But here's the big thing. I need to do more on YouTube. And I'm going to. Uh, I was gifted uh, an incredible little video camera as a Christmas gift this year. And I've been telling myself that uh, as soon as I get a camera, I'm going on YouTube. So it's going to happen. How does that impact Monster Kid Radio? Well, I, I want to definitely do some Monster Kid stuff on YouTube. I don't know what that means. So I don't know if that means I'm going to do video versions of me recording the podcast or expand it a little bit and just talk a little bit about being a monster kid. I'm going to do some normal vlogging as well, or not necessarily normal because I mean, it's me monster kid, but you know, some, some standard vlogging and a few other things. And of course my cats will end up on YouTube because that's what the internet's for, but stay tuned for that. I currently do have a monster kid radio channel on YouTube. There's not a heck of a lot there. Uh, there's some trailers, my acceptance speech for the Rondo award a couple of years ago and a Christmas greeting that I posted on Christmas day this year using the camera that I was given as a gift. And uh, I think it turned out okay. I mean, it's just short, it's dark because I'm a genius and decided to use the camera for the first time at night without any external lights. But anyway, uh, you know, that's going to be happening. What do you want to see on YouTube? What kind of YouTube content would you want to see come from me or Monster Kid Radio? Why don't you drop me a line and let me know? I'd really appreciate your feedback and input. Of course, you can also reach me on Facebook. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. You can like the page. Please consider liking the page. And you can join the group and we'll get involved with some conversations over there with you between episodes or even while you listen. Also, if you're an iTunes user, please consider giving us an honest review in the iTunes store. This month, we actually had two new reviews posted. One was by Dave Rocks, and he says, best podcast ever. Derek's passion is highly contagious. Rock on, Monster Kids. And the other one is from KingB62. Derek does a fantastic and fantastical job with his podcast. I always learn something new, and I love hearing the old trailers and interviews with creators. And MK Intelligentsia. If you're a monster kid, you owe it to yourself to subscribe and listen to these gems. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Dave Rocks and King B 62 for leaving these reviews in the iTunes store. If you are an iTunes user, again, please consider leaving us an honest review there. 
All right. That brings us to the end of this episode of the show. Again, thank you for being along for the ride. No matter when you joined us, thanks for being here right now. And I'm talking to you. Yeah. You personally, you're the best podcast listener out there. So thank you for listening to this podcast. Monster Kid Radio is original service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Galaxified that belongs to the band Seahorse from their album, also called Galaxified. They're a cool surf band that you can find in Richmond, Virginia. You can pick up the album for 10 bucks over at seahorseva.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.